0: Mark chapter one, last week Alan led us through just an excellent overview. Davette and I were away, but we were able to join you online and um, it was a blessing. This morning we're gonna get into the actual um, main part of the narrative. We're gonna look at the first 20 verses. And as we do, I, I wanna talk a little bit about time first, and and don't panic, Einstein's not going to figure into this, there's no physics anywhere. I just want to talk about the way we experience time and how we use the word time, and in Greek there's more than one word that is used. There's the word chronos, which is chronological, synchronous, that's time together, That's that's the progression of moments that happens another word that's often used is the word kairos which can overlap pretty heavily sometimes with chronos but it also has another sense if you want to talk about not so much this time as as opposed to that time as opposed to that time but you lift it off of the timeline and say this moment that is particularly significant there's something uh important and there's a season or there's an opportunity or there's this there's this um weight to this moment you would use the word Kairos, and and that figures significantly in this morning's passage, Uh, a Kairos moment for us. We all experienced those things September 1st, 2002, when I became the lead pastor here, or November 16th. 1992, when I joined the staff here, those are all moments that were beyond the significance of just this moment, then this moment, then this moment. Something happened that really shifted uh, the whole texture and, and weight of my life. At that At that particular moment, that was a season that unlocked a whole new reality. Sometimes we see, you've experienced those things, and sometimes we see them um, I was I was thinking of a common experience that most of us have had. Uh, you have probably seen the video on YouTube because it is one of the most watched videos ever, but it was uh, actually my 45th birthday, so, um, April 11th, 2009, when this Scottish cat lady who lived in a little village in a little cottage who was very much unrefined, very much uh, unpolished and a bit awkward, strode out onto the stage of Britain's Got Talent and everything shifted, right? You you already are tracking with me. Susan Boyle, you know, when she walks onto stage, everyone's not very polite, actually, kind of rude towards her and the judges are there and Simon Cowell, who... um, is is the main guy. He says to her, who do you want to be as famous as, or as successful as? That was what he said. Who do you want to be as successful as? And she said, Elaine Page, who is a very well-known British actress and singer and stage star and really big shot in UK. And everyone just kind of sneered and snorted. And it was kind of crazy. How could you ever be like Elaine Page? Come on, give me a break. And then she started singing. And as she's singing, you can actually watch because they video the different responses. Everything transforms. She sings "I Dreamed a Dream" from from Les Miserables, and it was extraordinary. It left um, Piers Morgan, who's another kind of crusty judge. He he literally said, "I'm just I'm speechless." You can see partway through Simon Cowell, who could be called Simon Scowl. He literally swoons as she's singing. And by the end of that song, everything has shifted, right? It's a Kairos moment for her where her life was one way before. And then then she took advantage of this particular opportunity and everything shifted. And I was thinking about that as a pretty dramatic example of how a moment can have more significance than we might just naturally think. And we don't always even know until we look back. She said in um, 2009 that her hope was to be as successful as Elaine Page. Now it's 15 years later. How do you determine how successful she is and whether that dream has come true? Well, there's probably a number of measures. The simplest one, certainly not the best one, but the simplest one is she's a public figure and an entertainer. How are her sales going compared to Elaine Page's? What's her net worth compared to Elaine Page at this point in her life. So I looked that up, and the estimate is that Elaine Page is worth $40 million because of her career. And 15 years after that moment, Susan Boyle is worth $45 million. So I guess she even got her dream to be as successful as Elaine Page. And I'm not a big Susan Boyle um, creeper or anything, so I didn't Check everything out. But as far as I know, she still actually lives in her little cottage with her cats, and it really hasn't changed her, which is good, because money is not the point. She wanted to make music and have a, have a platform to do that. But it was this moment. There was this opportunity, this season. It was, it was not just the next succession in the timeline. Something distinctive was there and happened and changed everything. In this passage this morning, it is the moment Jesus Christ is the moment that changes everything. And, and we wouldn't pin it down. Sometimes people try to, but I think it's, it's, it's wrong-minded. Uh, it, everything from his birth into this world to his crucifixion and his resurrection and his ascension and pouring out of his spirit, that moment is the moment and he says that kairos is fulfilled in this passage. And so we want to get to that, but first we just want to read our verses here. Mark is, uh, has a habit of going really, really fast. So there's a lot of stories that the other gospel writers will flesh out in more detail. And Mark just kind of is like a stone skipping across the top of these stories. And he, he keeps us moving. He, he, he wants to inject a sense of anticipation and a sense of, of movement And he's also trying to get to the really the main expression of Jesus' ministry. So this first 20 verses set the stage for everything else, and there's all different kinds of things going on. And if you just want to follow along with me, we'll try to keep up with Mark here. And I I guess I don't like to do this, but I'll have to. Uh, You may not know. We we remove the pulpit from here because as a normal person, I'm just really kind of boring. And I don't want to stand behind a pulpit and try to, so I try to take it away and just talk from the Bible, but I got to hold this thing. So I'll keep this here. Uh, Read Mark 1 with me. It starts by saying, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. the strap of whose sandals I'm not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. All right, let's catch our breath here for just a second. A lot's packed in here. And there's a lot that is being kind of just teased out by how Mark is recording these events for us. All of the anticipation and all of the longing, all of the frustration and all of the fear All of the hurt and all of the hopes and all of the anger and all of the weariness and all of the desire for change that the people in Israel have had for generations, for centuries is pulled to the surface by how Mark begins his gospel. He's going to tell us the story of Jesus and he starts by saying, hey, Isaiah told us something important was gonna happen. It's happened, this is how it begins. John is part of that picture. He's quite a picture of the way he's dressed. He's kind of, well, nobody even in that day, that wasn't normal stylish dress. He's just a interesting character. And he comes along and he's, he's got this ministry where people are flocking to him saying, we're ready for God to do his thing. And they are being baptized for the sake of repentance. It's like the, the baptism is a, a statement of faith. It's a statement of surrender. It's like, I want God and I will surrender to him and I will trust him. And so I turn away from what I have been um, committed to because I know that's wrong and I want to accept what he's bringing because I know that's right. And along the way, he starts talking, John, the baptizer, uh, starts talking about this next figure who's to come. And uh, the other gospels flesh it out in more detail, but John gives us a few, or Mark gives us a couple of highlights. And one of the things that he highlights is the way that John the Baptist is dressed, and we'll come back to that later. Another thing he highlights is the statement that, um, I'm not worthy to untie his shoes, Now, that's not just a random uh, word picture he's using. It's actually something that had a a deeper connection in their culture because they would talk about this. It's not like regular dinner conversation, but it was a a known reality. Uh, That was one of the most shameful things that you could do. One of the most degrading things that you could do would be to wash feet or to take off the shoes. And the master of the house would have servants to do that. But the master of the house, if he was a Jewish master and had both Jewish and non-Jewish servants, would never ask a Jewish servant to do his shoes because it was that lowly. We'll just have those lowly Gentiles do it. So here's John, the first prophet of God in more than 400 years. He is the direct spokesman for God, sent by God with God's message. And the first one that way in more than 400 years and he says, hey, let me point you to somebody else, and that somebody else is so extraordinary. I, the prophet of God, am not even worthy to untie his shoes. I am that much below him. And in fact, he strengthens his message when he goes on to say, you know, I'm baptizing you in water. He'll baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Um, what we're doing is, is a symbol, and expression of your heart. He's actually gonna change your heart because God himself will do a work in you, and it will be at this one's bidding. That's who's coming. Carry on verse 9. It says, In those days Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. When he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open, the Spirit descending on him like a dove, and a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son, with you I am well pleased. Now, Mark doesn't flesh this out, but the other gospels talk about a a conflict, if you will. John doesn't want to baptize Jesus because John's baptism is a baptism of repentance for sins. Jesus hasn't sinned. Why would he be baptized? And Mark doesn't flesh that out, so we'll just comment on it in passing. This isn't saying Jesus sinned. Jesus is identifying with us in our sin because he's come to do something about that. He's not sinned. He doesn't need to repent of anything. His baptism is an identification with us. And as he's baptized, then um, the spirit descends and the father speaks from heaven just a quick aside, this is one of the places in scripture that we uh, understand at least a key aspect of God, the Trinity. uh, Part of what we understand is found here. God is not uh, like me in that I am a dad and I'm a husband I'm a pastor those are different roles I have and God's not well he's a father he's a son he's a spirit it's not like well sometimes I'm acting as a father sometimes I'm acting as a husband sometimes I'm acting as a as a, a pastor and so God sometimes acts as father he sometimes acts as son sometimes he acts as spirit that's wrong that's actually heresy there are churches that claim to be Christian that that teach that in their formal doctrine today more importantly there's a lot of believers who've kind of taken that as an analogy that helps them and it's not right right? Understanding the Trinity is actually, it's actually not fully possible. It's a mystery. But this passage helps us not fall off the edge. God is one God, and yet he is three distinct persons, and they aren't confused. And we won't develop our teaching on the Trinity because we're just looking at what Mark says. But just in passing, this is one of the passages that's really helpful to say. Here's one of the, here's one of the boundary markers. Some of the deep mysteries of God are beyond our understanding. And in, in a sense, that's actually kind of comforting, even though it's a little uh, frustrating or confusing. It's because if, if there was a God who was small enough to me, to, for me to fully understand him, he wouldn't really be much of a God. And I need somebody who's bigger than that. And I have somebody who's bigger than that. And some of the things that we know about God, we only know by saying, well, it's not this, it's not this, but it is this. The Trinity is one of those. This is one of those passages that helps us to understand at least an aspect of God. So Father, Son, and Spirit, the Father speaks out of heaven and says, you are my Son, with you I'm well pleased. Carrying on, verse 12, the Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness. And he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan and he was with the wild animals and the angels were ministering to him. So the first thing that happens after he goes public is the spirit drives him into the wilderness. He impels him. He, he leads him firmly out there. It's not, it's not a harsh thing. It's just an urgent thing that Jesus must immediately go and do battle. And so he immediately goes and faces God's enemy and our enemy, Satan, And in this 40-day testing time, he's there and he's being tempted and there's wild animals and that's not a positive image. That's an image that's filled with darkness and and danger. And the idea is this is a hard place, a hard time. And, um, you know, just for a second, let's stop there and acknowledge that sometimes life has got us in hard places and hard times, scary things, painful things, things that we wouldn't choose. Things that we find confusing or even infuriating. Sometimes in those places, we may wonder where God is. How could this happen? Has He abandoned us? And in those moments, we have to ask ourselves Am I the follower of a crucified Messiah? Or am I not? Because if I'm the follower of a crucified Messiah, That must mean that at times and at places, for his purposes, God will use hard things. As Jesus is sent into the wilderness, it is the Spirit who is sending him there, and it is not pleasant, it is difficult. And that's not to make light of my difficulty. It's not to minimize my pain, my struggle, my questioning. I need to bring those things to God, and I may need your help in walking through them. This is not to say, buck up, just deal with it. It's to say, even in the midst of the most painful, the most confusing, the most heart-wrenching things, even if I can't see him, God is actually there. Maybe, maybe I can see his purposes. For Jesus, this is mission critical. There was no way for him to do what he was called to do without this moment had to happen. Maybe, maybe I'll be able to see how it's mission critical for my life. But what I can know is that the angels of God are ministering to me. Whether I see them or not, God is not abandoning me. And he will meet me in whatever hard place I'm at and care for me. The angels are actually there. The grammar says they're there the whole time. It's not like this all happens, then at the end they show up. It's like, no, there's this season of of wrestling and hardship and the angels are part and parcel of that. So even as God has allowed these very difficult things to come in the life of his son, He's walking it with him. And I think that's a fruitful thing for me to remember as I think about the temptation of Jesus. But Mark is just moving us through quickly. He's getting us to the beginning of Jesus' ministry. So after Jesus has been baptized and after this temptation, then the public proclamation begins. After John's arrested, verse 14, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying the time is fulfilled, the kairos is fulfilled. This is that significant moment. This is not the moment in succession of time. This is the one that lifts off that and says this is a significant and critical moment. Something important is happening right here. Right. Yeah. The time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. So that's what he proclaims. And then immediately, it doesn't even talk about how people are responding. It focuses in on Jesus' ministry team. Moving on to verse 16. Passing alongside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. Jesus said to them, follow me and I will make you become fishers of men immediately they left their nets and followed him. Going on a little farther, he saw James and John, I'm sorry, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were in the boat mending their nets and immediately called them and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and followed him. Okay, so this last section is kind of the launch of Jesus' public ministry. And then as the book unfolds, it's gonna slow down a little bit. Mark still likes to move fast. That word immediately, he uses it more by orders of magnitude than anyone else. In fact, he uses it more than the entire rest of the New Testament combined by several factors. He just loves that word. Sometimes they don't even translate it for us. Sometimes it really means the next thing, but often it has a sense of you know, immediately or, or importance or we've, we've got to do this or urgency because he's, he's, building, he's, he's building a lot of momentum and a lot of urgency into his gospel here. And so these first two um, sections of Jesus are really brief, but they set the stage then for the rest of what's to come. And it, it, it summarizes his teaching and his ministry saying, the kingdom of God, the gospel of God, that has come. And in that, we now have the fulfillment of this significant moment. Everything shifts right here because the kingdom of God is being offered to you. The kingdom of God, to boil it down to simplest terms, really is God's rule. What he's saying is the rule of God is active in a new way and it is accessible to you right now, and that changes everything. And that's good news gospel is not really a religious word. It's just good news, right? It was used in other contexts as well. For instance, if, if news came from the battle and we won the battle, they would come in, gospel, 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 we won, right? It would be used in different kinds of settings. One of the interesting things is, though, all of the literature that we have from the secular world uses gospel in the plural. It's always Good news, amongst all the good news, here's a good thing, right? Uh, About all the good things, here's really good news. We won the battle. In the Bible, in the New Testament, gospel is always singular. It's the good news. It's the good news that stands apart and separate and above in a distinctive way like nothing else. All other good news just kind of fades into the background. It, it's, just, it's just, it may be good, but it's just not, it, it's not even on the same playing field. The gospel, the good news, that God rules and that his rule is active now and it's accessible to me now, that's good news. Now we don't necessarily naturally hear that as good news. Because I like to be in charge of my life. I like to direct my life. I like to say how my world should go. I like to be in control. In other words, I like to be God. I won't say it that way, but that's really what I'm saying. I wanna be God. And the problem is, that's terrible news. If people actually let me be God, that would be the worst thing. If I ever run for the position of God and you see posters up, vote for Robert, don't, don't do it. That's a terrible idea. It will be bad for you. It will be bad for the world. And it will be bad for me. Even just doing it in my own little corner of the world, it doesn't work. And I certainly can't do it better on a grand scale. That's bad news. The good news is when God takes over. Now, it it, it may feel counterintuitive because it feels like, but that restricts me. But that's because I'm seeing the world wrongly. And what Jesus unpacks for us here, or actually what Mark unpacks for us is the way he tells the story of Jesus is how this good news and this kairos moment, this, this significant shift, how it ought to change everything and how it ought to cause me to see my life and this world with new eyes. Ought to see my life in this world with new eyes. If you're one who's taking notes and you just wrote that down, you wrote it down wrong. Because I didn't spell it E-Y-E-S. I need to see this world in my life with new I-Z-E eyes. Here's what I mean. Each of us, as we're born into this world and as we live our lives without reference to God, try to maximize Try to maximize our lives. I want as much as I can get. I want as much pleasure. I want as much comfort. I want as much security. I want as much favor. I want as much acceptance. I want as much stuff. I want as much experience. I want to, it, it's like it's maximizing and it all ultimately comes back to me. How can I maximize what I get? And that is the fundamental problem that has ruined everything. What I need to do is change eyes, and the good news of God relativizes my life. I need to see everything relativized, which is to see my life and this world relative to God and dependent on him, right? I need to change the eyes that drives my life, Didn't say minimize, right? The opposite in this case of maximize is not minimize. This is not going to diminish my life. Actually, it's going to make it better. But it's going to put it in its right spot. I've tried to move into God's chair. And the universe doesn't work that way. And that's why I have all the problems I do. And all 8 billion of us have tried to move into God's chair. And that's why the world is the way that it is, right? The good news is that God is... Active in his rule, and he's accessible to me, and I can relativize my life by how I respond to what Jesus has done and put it in its right spot. It's not even to marginalize my life. It's not like, well, my life doesn't matter, just throw it over to the fringes. It's like, no, my life does matter, but the center of gravity is in a different place. The, the, the target of the bullseye is in a different place. Everything is seen in reference to God and his rule and his kingdom. Everything is lived as an experience of and an expression of that. That's when my life is the richest And the best it can be. And when Jesus says the moment is fulfilled, here's the reality. Good news. God rules. You need to repent and trust. That's what he's bringing us to. So as we look at this passage and try to say, what do I personally do with this? Let me point out a couple of things. First, let's flesh out a little bit more when Jesus says, The time is fulfilled. This particular significant moment has arrived. Everything's being fulfilled. Mark has set us up with a very rich background for that. He's drawing up all of the hopes and all of the fears and all of the concerns and all of the needs of the people of God of old, the Israelites And then ultimately of the whole world and saying all of that is now being addressed in this moment. And he shows us that in the text a number of ways. First, he starts by quoting Isaiah. Isaiah was the prophet of God more than 700 years prior to our passage. And he's looking forward and he's saying, here's what's coming. God hasn't forgotten us. He's sending a messenger and he's ultimately gonna send his servant and these things are gonna happen. And Mark starts quoting that and saying, it's happening right now. Secondly, um, he spends time describing Isaiah's clothes, I mean, John the baptizer's clothes. Now, think, think about the scriptures. How often does God talk much about people's clothes? How often does he make a point out of it, right? Every once in a while, it shows up incidentally, like Bartimaeus, the blind man who casts his cloak aside to run to Jesus. Even in the, 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 the crucifixion scene, when they gamble over the one part of his Jesus clothing that is, is seamless, it's not really about the clothing. Right, It's not a big, here's what we picture. Now, when, when, uh, when we have these flashes into heaven, we might see the clothing and go, wow, there's something really significant there. Uh, the, the clothing of the high priest is discussed and it's, it's always very significant. When the clothing is, is called out and any kind of detail is significant and it's interesting that when we don't talk much about that, John the baptizer, his clothing's called out. It's like this guy's wandering around in hairy clothes with this big leather belt and he's eating bugs and he's, whoa, what's going on here? Like, well, he's um, different. He's out of step maybe with the rest of the world, but in a very specific way. One of the things that was predicted before Messiah was come is that Elijah would come again, right? So we're picking up tones of Isaiah, we're picking up tones of Malachi, which the last words are about that. And then John is that fulfillment and he's even dressed like Elijah. That's the way Elijah was. Elijah is the first kind of classic prophet. The one you picture that's really out of step, with the bony finger and the long beard thundering from God, right? There's prophets prior to him, like Samuel and Moses, and, but they, they were different. Elijah's like the paradigmatic prophet that everyone looks at. And, and so Mark is drawing that in. This is who John the Baptist is. Elijah's the one that has the big showdown on Mount Carmel. And he, 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 he rails on the people. He says, pick pick aside stop wobbling back and forth you're on god's side you're on satan's side pick All right that classic picture of a prophet that's john the baptist he's just shown up to call people to pick a side in fulfillment of isaiah in fulfillment of malachi and fulfillment of so many other places it also says jesus when he's tempted is in the wilderness for 40 days that's important Elijah, on his journey to meet with God face-to-face, was in the wilderness for 40 days. Moses, when he meets with God face-to-face on Mount Sinai, is up on the mountain 40 days. The people of Israel, when they fail, are wandering in the wilderness for 40 years. Jesus begins his ministry 40 days in the wilderness. He is the new Moses to lead us to God. He is the new Israel who's going to succeed where they failed, he is the savior. All of these expectations, all of these hopes, all of these threads that they would have just longed for if they had any kind of of faith, if they weren't just completely secularized. Mark is saying, look, all this stuff comes together. This is the moment, that's being fulfilled. But then there's one more he does that brings us all into the picture because of the way the book of Mark starts. The beginning. Well, it is the beginning. You don't have to say the beginning. I don't have to say topic sentence and then say my topic sentence. I can just say my topic sentence. But Mark says the beginning. Now, it it could just be stylistic, but it, it seems pretty clear it's not. What he's actually doing is he's tying us back to Genesis 1, the beginning. In the beginning, right? That's the way the Bible starts. I remember one time, it was a lot of years ago, an elder member of our congregation who's long since gone to be with Jesus came running up to me. It was an evening event of some sort and I was getting out of my car. They came running up to me, pastor, 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 do you know the first five words in the Hebrew Bible? And I stopped for a minute and I said, uh, yes, barashit bara elohim Hashamayim Sorry, Charlie, if that was bad. And he looked at me and he says, whoa, That's amazing, thank you. And he went running off before I could say anything else. And I'm thinking, do you know Hebrew? If you do, why did you ask me? And if you don't, how do you know I told you? And I wasn't just saying my grocery list in pig Latin. and, And by the way, what was that all about? I have no idea to this day what that man was asking, but I do know in that particular moment, he thought his pastor was a genius. It was a shining moment. And you know what else? As he walked away, I was thinking, like most pastors, my Greek is bad and my Hebrew is horrible. Um, I think those are the only five words I remember from the Hebrew Bible. He could have asked me any other question, any other question, and I wouldn't have had an answer. But he asked me that one, and I looked great. Sometimes it is just better to be lucky than smart. That was one of those moments. But that's the way the Bible starts. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That's the foundation. Everything unfolds from there. That's why we're here. And the problem is that was great, but very quickly everything went off the rails. And we took it off the rails. And Mark saying, using, echoing that very language is pointing us back to saying that's being caught up in this too. Everything, everything that's wrong with this world Everything that you're afraid of, everything that's broken, everything that's been ugly or ruined can be fixed. The unhealthy can be healthy. The ugly can be beautiful. The broken can be mended. The lost can be found. This moment captures all of those moments. This kairos, this opportunity, this significant occurrence that is beginning right now changes everything. That's what Jesus is saying. That's what Mark is pointing us to. All of those things, every longing and every hurt and every problem and every wish, everything good that we would want for and everything bad that we wouldn't want, it's all being addressed right here and right now. This moment changes everything. I don't think it's a mistake that our calendars divide on Jesus. And I know in our day and age, we've, we've changed the language Before the common era and the common era, but it still divides on Jesus. It doesn't matter the language, it's the life. The life changed everything. And Jesus is saying, That's beginning right now. And what are you going to do with it? What will you do in response? In a sense, his Kairos moment creates one for me. It's a significant moment of me saying, If everything shifted, how do I respond? The first response both John and Jesus call out is repent and trust. The starting point is surrendering being God. It's not working. It's never gonna work. I'm just gonna mess it up. And what's more, it doesn't just, it's not just kind of bad. It's horrible because it sets me at odds. I'm a rebel against the true God who is just and all powerful and to whom I am accountable and I will be judged. But that God has stepped onto the world and said, I can change that. This is that moment. How will you respond? Some of us, maybe you're still battling with that. It's a hard place to come to being to the end of ourselves and surrendering. But it's the only place of freedom and hope, ultimately, if we're really honest. Nothing else works over the long haul. So that's the first place. Maybe you've got questions, you're on a journey and you wanna talk. We'd love to talk to you some more because Jesus first has come to offer a new life beginning with transforming your heart and mine. And the response that I need to make is surrender and trust. Repent, turn away from everything. It's like, I saw the world this way, I thought this. That's all wrong. I'm not in control, I'm not right. Those things, some of those things aren't even good and I'm never gonna get where I'm supposed to be. I see you, you are God, you are the king, you know best, you are gracious, I embrace you and I trust you. Repent and believe the gospel. That's the first thing. But the little next story helps us because I know for a lot of us, um, that's, that's where we sit. Now what? And I think the reminders um, from the next section are helpful. Passing along the Sea of Galilee, verse 16, he sees Simon and Andrew and then he sees James and John. And he says to them, follow me and I'll make you become fishers of men. Immediately, immediately they left their nets. I think that's intentional at that time. It's not just the next thing. It's, it's idea this is urgent. The summons of God is actually urgent in my life. For some of us, we forget that. It's like, I'm surrendered to you, God. I'm coming. I'm coming. And we drag our feet. Now God doesn't always move fast. In fact, my suspicion is, and my experience is, usually he moves slower, a lot slower than I would want. So it's not a point of fast or slow, it's a point of responsiveness. They immediately drop their nets and follow Jesus. If I am a child of God, that's a posture I wanna maintain, an immediacy of my following. But he calls them. Right? And they follow. The calling of God starts first with a relational part. Follow me. Know me. Be with me. Always. 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 It starts with a relationship. The rest will never work without that. God's call is first and foremost into relationship. And then into mission. Right? Because he says to them, follow me and I will make you to become fishers of men. Now look at what they have to do. And let's think about our lives for just a second. They drop their nets, right? There's these nets that are on the shore that are forsaken. I love that image, forsaken nets. In fact, uh, most of you wouldn't be aware of this, but uh, quite a few years ago, um, we had grown and grown and grown. We had three services. There was no space. We're like, ah, what are we gonna do? Place is just bursting at the seams and and um, through a process came to, came to understand that ah, we need to start another campus. So we did an Uptown Whittier. We were Whittier Hills Baptist Church. So Whittier Hills Baptist Church, Russell, Whittier Hills Baptist Church, Uptown, that's great. We're Whittier, but then we still needed to do that. So we launched one in La Habra, Whittier Hills Baptist Church of La Habra. That's just stupid. That's like the Los Angeles Angels of Anaheim. (laughs) Nobody thinks that's a good name except for maybe the Anaheim City Council, right? That's just dumb. We need to change the name And if we're gonna do that, let's not focus on our denomination and let's not focus on our location. Let's focus on something that will point people to Jesus. So amongst the staff, there were a number of us who were trying to figure out how can we use this image, Forsaken Nets. Now there might be some churches that could get away with that. We are Forsaken Nets. But that sounds kind of dumb for us. It doesn't match us. We're not the Forsaken Nets kind of church. But I thought that would be a great image. Yeah, so the name's not Forsaken Nets. It'd make a great t-shirt though, wouldn't it? Order of the Forsaken Net. And people, what does that mean? I'm glad you asked, right? Because here's what they're doing. They're walking away. And look at what they're walking away from. Now it's relativizing. They're not leaving things that they're just abandoning, right? They're leaving their work. They're going to have to work. And they're leaving family, right? It's a sin. It is a sin to turn our back on our parents. God boils it down to 10. That's number five on the list. Right, so when it says James and John leave their dad, when it says Peter, James, John, and Andrew leave their fishing, it's not like, well, here's a forever abandonment of work and family. It's like, no, this is a relativizing thing. Jesus is here, his call on my life reshapes everything, restructures everything, reorients everything. My family, my job, these things are now to be seen in relationship to him and is dependent on him. And that's what they're doing. And in doing that, they're doing more than just the obvious Right, it's, it's tough to walk away from your job, but imagine it's about their identity too. These are fishermen who are sons of fishermen, who are sons of fishermen. who, are, For generations, their families have fished the northern shore of the Lake Galilee. And they're walking away from not just, hey, here's my livelihood. This is my identity. It's who I am. This is what I do. When you walk away from your livelihood, it's like, well, there's my security. There's my comfort. When James and John leave their dad in the boat, like there's a change in their family structure. Those are all really difficult things. But they're central. Anytime I let anything get closer to me or more central to me than God and his kingdom, that has become an idol. And I have now veered off from where I'm supposed to be. That has to be relativized. Those things are still necessary and they're good, but they have to come back to me in a fresh way. Peter, James, John, Andrew, they forsake their nets. How often do I try to pick up my nets again? Say, no, 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 you first, God, you first. When Jesus comes, he calls them and that's what he calls them to. And then the last thing I want to just briefly point out says, come follow me and I will make you fishers of men. Mission is my mission. Mission is your mission. Relationship is central and first, the foundation of everything, but every single one of us, mission is central to our lives. That's what Jesus came for. Have I outgrown Jesus? How could I ever do that? Well, that's Jesus' job. Yeah, but Jesus says in John 17 in this prayer, I've sent them into the world as you sent me into the world. Yeah, well, that's the apostles. That's who's there. Yes, in the very next section in John 17, he says, and I'm praying this not only for them, but for everyone who would believe through their word. For every single one of us, the call of God is to recenter on him. And that relationship redefines everything. And part of what my life is about is about the reality that the world is broken and needs a savior. And it expresses in a variety of different ways, through fishermen and stay-at-home parents and retirees and missionaries and everything in between. But it's fundamental. And in fact, it's easy to lose track. I think our culture, Christian culture today, has really tried to recover some things that we rightly need to recover. We've emphasized things like beauty, and justice, because they've been de-emphasized. That's not good. We need to put an emphasis there. But don't make a mistake. When the problem is fundamentally me, there's no way of fixing it without starting with fixing me. You treat the sickness while you manage the symptoms. Every one of us is part of God's mission to proclaim that there is good news. God's rule is active and it is accessible. And for each of us, there's a Kairos moment where we have to make a choice and say, is that what I'm going to respond to or not? And that choice is hard because it relativizes my whole life, but it gives everything almost... Everything almost back to me, just better. Some things it takes out because they're wrong. They're just wrong. And some things that are good are still taken out because they're not mission critical for my life. And that's hard. That's a rub point. But it's still the better path. In fact, it's the only path that will actually work. So Jesus says, time's fulfilled. Elijah, Isaiah, Malachi, Moses, the wilderness, the very beginning, all of that stuff. This moment changes everything. Repent and believe. I'm gonna ask the to come and I'll pray for us. Lord Jesus, I ask that you would, in fact, Grow us as your disciples. I I remember in this passage, you said you would make us. Even when we sign up, it's not this big job that we have to do. We yoke up with you and you're the one who has the broad and strong shoulders. We just have to keep choosing the yoke. So Lord, may we be willing to let you genuinely be God and relativize everything else. Give us back those things that are good but let them be better because it's all dependent on and in relationship to you. Remove those things that are bad. And Lord, those things that aren't bad in themselves, but they're not mission critical, that you will remove. Give us grace for that. Lord, if there's somebody who doesn't yet know you as Savior, pray that you draw them to that place. Lord, would this be a place where we truly die to ourselves and follow you? I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.